Welcome to episode three of the New Renaissance Bookcast with me, David Lorimer, from the Scientific and Medical Network. Each episode, I review one or two significant books across a number of disciplines, including science, health, philosophy, spirituality, psychology, ecology, and politics. This week, my two books are 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation, and The American Trajectory, Divine or Demonic, both by David Ray Griffin. But before I get into these books, I want to tell you about a new study entitled A Structural Reevaluation of the Collapse of World Trade Center 7, which was issued recently by researchers at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, who concluded definitively that the destruction of the 47-story WTC 7 was not caused by fires, as maintained in the official NIST report. Their extensive four-year computer modeling effort was followed by a robust peer review process, which included dozens of comments from the public, as well as a review by two external independent experts. And this study uh, extends to 125 pages. To put this in context, I'm going to quote uh, a passage written by Henry Kissinger, who has been one of the champions of the game of great power politics. And he formulated six essential principles of international politics, which have been adopted by both Republican and Democratic administrations since the time of Nixon and practiced by European powers in the 19th century. One, a great power must have a grand long-term global foreign policy which maximizes its interests in the world. Two, in the pursuit of such a policy, it must maintain sufficient economic and military power to defeat at least two of its rivals at any one time. Three, a great power must promote regional rivalries and conflicts, thereby always maintaining a key balancing role globally. Think China, Taiwan, India, Pakistan, Israel, Palestine. Four, Democracies are not effective at the conduct of foreign policy. Therefore, information must be managed and true strategic interests hidden. 5. A great power must occasionally use its power overtly, otherwise the threat of force is not credible. The US involvement in military campaigns since the Second World War is legion. Korea, Vietnam, Guatemala, Chile, Panama, Nicaragua, Haiti, Yugoslavia and Lebanon, to name a few. War needs to be seen not only as a natural extension of state power, but as an activity essential to the survival of the state, as articulated by the report from Iron Mountain in the late 1960s. Now I come to these two books. Uh, the first is 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation by David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodworth, published by Olive Branch Press in 2018. As readers of this journal may recall, David Ray Griffin is a philosopher of religion who has written a dozen books on 9-11, all of which have been reviewed in these pages. George W. Bush apparently wrote in his diary on September the 11th, 2001, that, quote, the Pearl Harbor of the 21st century happened today, unquote. And we now know the foreign policy fallout of this event in terms of the war on terror along with domestic measures curtailing freedom and embodied in the Patriot Act. 
This book is the outcome of a six-year investigation by an international review panel covering 51 points illustrating the problematic status of all the major claims in the official count of the 9-11 attacks, some of which are obviously false. Hence the title of my review, in this case a forensic report, also because it uses the best evidence consensus model for medical research and contains 875 footnotes. The panel of over 20 people includes experts on 9-11 from many disciplines including physics, chemistry, structural engineering, aeronautical engineering and jurisprudence. The procedure was to present dubious claims from the official account to panellists separately and with no consultation to see if a consensus emerged. The examination of each claim was subjected to three rounds of review and feedback on a blind basis and proposed points required a vote of at least 85% in order to be accepted. There are nine categories covered in the 51 points. The destruction of the Twin Towers, the destruction of WTC-7, the attack on the Pentagon, the 9-11 flights, US military exercises on and before 9-11, claims about military and political leaders, Osama bin Laden and the hijackers, phone calls from the 9-11 flights, and insider trading. I should state at the outset my view that the mainstream press has exhibited the greatest dereliction of duty here, not only in failing to investigate the evidence for themselves, but even more so for dismissing evidence-based arguments as, quote, irrational, unsupported conspiracy theories, and instead suggesting personal shortcomings that make people susceptible to conspiracy theories. This shows how terrified mainstream journalists are of being accused of naive belief in conspiracy theories. And I remind readers and listeners that the notion of a conspiracy theory was created by the CIA following the Kennedy assassination as a means of discrediting those questioning the official view. The most cursory reading of Griffin's books, including this one, will disabuse readers of any hint of naive credulity. Indeed, the credulous ones are the mainstream press for having uncritically accepted the findings of the official 9-11 report. However, no doubt they will ignore this book as they have the others. It would be good if there were a few more people like Peter Ketchum of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, who released a report on the collapse of World Trade Center towers in 2005. He writes in 2016, after watching documentaries challenging NIST's findings, that, quote, the more I investigated, the more apparent it became that NIST reached a predetermined conclusion by ignoring, dismissing, and denying the evidence, unquote. For instance, NIST and indeed the 9-11 Commission were asked to determine how fire had brought the buildings down, rather than to investigate more openly the causes of their collapse. Each chapter consists of a description of the official account relating to the point at issue, the best evidence of what actually occurred, and a conclusion relating to the official claim. As a simple illustration using the first three points, it was claimed that no one gave evidence for explosions in the Twin Towers, while the best evidence suggests that 100 of the 500 members of the Fire Department of New York reported explosions along with other journalists, police officers, and WTC employers. Hence, the NIST claim is false. 
The official account is that the Twin Towers were destroyed by aeroplane impacts, jet fuel and fire. However, the maximum temperature that such fires could have reached is 1800 degrees Fahrenheit, while steel only melts at 2700 degrees Fahrenheit, so something else must have been involved for this to have occurred. Hence the official account does not stand up to scrutiny and a new investigation is required. In addition, some debris was ejected horizontally from the Twin Towers up to a distance of 600 metres, which cannot be accounted for by gravity alone. For me, the destruction of WTC-7 is the clearest smoking gun. The official report claimed that it collapsed through fire alone, even though no comparable building anywhere in the world has collapsed, even with fires raging for up to 18 hours. If you look for yourself on the YouTube video channel, you will see that the collapse of WTC-7 on the left half of the screen and a sample controlled demolition on the right-hand side. For me, the conclusion is self-evident. Technically, all 82 of the building support columns would have to have been eliminated to account for the near free-fall acceleration of the building's collapse. The book contagious contains 30 pages of notes with detailed discussions on these points. In their conclusion, the authors note that if the official account of 9-11 were true, quote, we would be surprised to find its claims about any of these nine topics to be false, end quote. The book shows them to be false in critical respects and across all nine categories. And, for instance, if WTC-7 was brought down by explosive in, in a controlled demolition, then Al-Qaeda could not have been responsible for this. The unavoidable conclusion is that the official 9-11 report should be classified as fake news and a genuinely independent inquiry should be initiated in order to clear up these points. The truth is in fact in plain sight for those who have eyes to see, but don't hold your breath that this book will create sufficient momentum for a new inquiry to be launched, as it will no doubt be ignored by the mainstream press in the same way. It really is time for some leading journalists to investigate this for themselves and have the courage to stand up and be counted. The second book uh, puts these points in a larger historical context and I've entitled the review Freedom to Dominate. It's entitled The American Trajectory, Divine or Demonic by David Ray Griffin, published by Clarity Press in 2018. This penetrating analysis constitutes the background or prequel to David's book Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World, which I reviewed in a previous issue, and puts one in mind of the bumper sticking sticker stating, Be kind to America, or else we will bring you freedom and democracy. The starting point is the self-image of the US as exceptional, moral, and a force for good, unlike previous empires. This rhetoric is still asserted within the political mainstream, for instance by President Obama, responsible for an extension of illegal U.S. drone attacks, when he stated that, quote, I believe in American exceptionalism with every fibre of my being, unquote. However, Griffin also reports an interview by President Trump talking about what Putin asks um, when he said, What, you think our country is so innocent? provoking a rebuke from the New York Times for drawing a moral equivalency between the United States and Russia. Replete with historical examples, 
Griffin shows the gap between moral rhetoric and the practical politics and the indissoluble link between militarism and imperialism. America has 700 bases throughout the world. The overall thrust of the argument is that the trajectory of American foreign policy, quote, has been more malign than benign, more demonic than divine. Page 31. Beginning with an analysis of the elimination of Native Americans, whose population by 1890 had been reduced by 95%, from 10 million to 228,000, he proceeds to describe interventions in the Philippines, Cuba and Hawaii, brutal invasions that are portrayed to the public as benevolent assimilation. The original ideals of freedom, self-determination and democracy are ignored when there is a conflict between liberty and profit or self-interest, the latter always prevailing, while the former continue to be used rhetorically for propaganda purposes. In practical political terms, this is encapsulated in the so-called Monroe Doctrine, where the US arrogates to itself a natural right to control the Western Hemisphere and, through an open-door policy, to promote its own political and economic advantage. There are striking and interesting parallels between US policy in World Wars I and II, between Wilson and Roosevelt. Griffin explains how Wilson, aided and abetted by Churchill, deceived the US people by claiming that he wanted to keep America out of the war while doing everything possible to get into the war. The key incident was the sinking of the Lusitania, and Griffin's analysis shows that the ship was deliberately endangered and was carrying highly explosive material, so that when it was hit by a German U-boat, it sank in 18 minutes, resulting in 128 American deaths. A flame of indignation swept the country, as in 9-11, and enabled Wilson to argue that Germany had forced America to enter the war. There is further fascinating material on the detailed policies calculated to provoke Germany. Roosevelt engaged in a similar deceptive strategy during World War II. He engineered a plan to put Japan in the wrong, using the US fleet in Hawaii as bait to tempt them to act. When the attack on Pearl Harbor occurred, it was not a surprise to the US administration, but the officers in charge, Admiral Kimmel and Captain Shaw, knew nothing in advance. And when on December 7th Washington received the information about the exact minute of the attack several hours in advance, General Marshall sent this information to Hawaii in such a way that it would arrive only after the attack had begun. Perhaps the most disgraceful aspect of this incident is the deliberate cover-up and, and the discrediting of the officers, much of whose testimony was omitted from the official report. Worse still, they were inundated with hate mail and called traitors, while other witnesses were intimidated into reversing their testimony, with one even thrown into a psychiatric ward and being told that his testimony had better change or he'd be in the ward for the rest of his life. So it is obvious that the US administration of the time simply lied for political purposes. The officers were eventually exonerated, but only long after their deaths. The chapter on Hiroshima and Nagasaki shows how the decision to drop the atomic bomb was political diplomatic rather than military. Already by 1943, the government had decided that the bomb would be used on Japan rather than Germany, having learned that the Germans had given up their attempt to create one. 
Roosevelt was told that if the bombs were not produced and used, the Manhattan Project, quote, would be subjected to relentless investigation and criticism, unquote. Its real military purpose was to, to subdue the Soviets, but the result was the nuclear arms race. Truman knew that the Japanese would never agree to surrender unconditionally, whereby the emperor would be removed and tried for war crimes. As one historian put it, Truman needed Japan's refusal to just to ju re Truman needed ja Japan's refusal in order to justify the use of the atom bomb. The fact that dropping the bomb was not militarily essential makes its use morally indefensible as a brazen demonstration of power, and even George Kennan regarded this as an indignity of monstrous proportions. Griffin asks rhetorically if Americans can still regard itself as exceptionally moral after such an incident. The CIA was created in 1947 to promote freedom through covert operations, of which many examples are given, for instance in Iran, installing the Shah in a military coup against popular will and propping up a dictatorial and repressive regime. This historical background explains a great deal about the attitudes of Iran towards the US. It turns out that, in the name of resisting communism, defined as totalitarian, the US government lent support to authoritarian governments opposed to communism, but who also oppressed their people. George Humphrey is quoted as saying that the National Security Council should stop talking so much about democracy and instead support dictatorships of the right if their policies are pro-American. In both Cuba and Brazil, a policy of neutral nationalism was, was thought to be threatening to the US commercial interests. <clears throat> and in the case of Cuba, this drove Castro into communism. In Brazil, in 1961, the CIA spent millions of dollars supporting candidates opposing President Goulart and engineered his removal in a coup after which the American ambassador remarked that it was the single most important victory for freedom in the hemisphere in recent years. The CIA clarified that the change will create a greatly improved climate for private investment, thus revealing the underlying motive. The net result was that this March 31st revolution, said to be necessary to prevent a possible left-wing dictatorship, ushered in an actual right-wing military dictatorship that, besides lasting for two decades, was especially brutal. Further chapters detail coups, campaigns, false flag operations and wars in Greece, Italy, Korea, the Philippines, Guatemala, the Dominican Republic, Iraq, Indonesia and, of course, Vietnam, to which a whole chapter is devoted. This was ultimately about US potency and credibility while also avoiding a domino effect in Southeast Asia. One memo from John McNaughton at the Department for Defense, elsewhere referred to as the Department for Projecting Power, stated that 70% of the aim was to avoid a humiliating US defeat, affecting their reputation as a guarantor, 20% to keep Vietnam <coughs> territory from Chinese hands, and only 10% to permit the people of South Vietnam to enjoy a better, freer way of life. These figures speak for themselves, and there's an additional aim to emerge from the crisis without unacceptable taint from the methods used. This aim was certainly not achieved, with the dropping of 100 million tonnes of herbicides and countless tonnes of napalm bombs, 
all resulting in up to 4 million Vietnamese casualties, along with 700,000 Cambodians and 58,000 American troops. Senator Wayne Morse remarked in 1967 that the US was going to become guilty of being the greatest threat to the peace of the world. I will select one final theme from among many others which might be raised. The failure of the League of Nations and the United Nations to achieve the state of Dames. In 1883, my great-grandfather James Lorimer, a Scottish legal philosopher and professor of international law at Edinburgh, published his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Law of Nations. I have his copy with the printer's bill still inside. Griffin devotes a page to his work where he proposed that disarmament would not occur without the prior creation of an international government with the necessary military forces to provide security. This international government would be the guardian of the freedom of all national governments. In the cases of both LN and the UN, the great powers wanted to preserve their right, as Rousseau had put it, of being unjust when they please, perpetuating a system of international anarchy based on national self-interest. Then the US Senate did not allow the country to join the League. The UN is often accused of being ineffective, but Griffin shows that it is ineffective primarily because it was intended to be so by its architects, the primary architect having been the United States itself, which naturally wanted to preserve its right to intervene for reasons of self-interest in the affairs of other countries, whether overtly or covertly. Hence a historian's conclusion quoted in the book that the protection of their own sovereignty and freedom of action seemed more important to them than permanent peace. This is still the case, and one wonders when humanity will reach a sufficient degree of collective maturity to reorganise international affairs for the good of the planet and the whole body politic. In this respect, I refer to the work of my friend Nicholas Hager on world government in a democratic sense. The penultimate chapter analyzes the US drive for global hegemony, even in terms of what is known as full-spectrum dominance, implying the weaponization of space currently ongoing. Policy documents supporting this drive have been developed since the 1992 Pentagon publication entitled Defense Planning Guidance, where, according to Paul Wolfowitz, Calculations of power and self-interest rather than altruism and ideals provide the proper basis for framing strategy. These thoughts were further developed by the Project for the New American Century, PNAC, whose membered, members recommended the removal of Saddam Hussein as early as 1998. The implementation of their foreign policy recommendations required a new Pearl Harbor, which occurred on September the 11th, 2001 and which is the subject of many other books by Griffin, previously reviewed in these pages. The 2002 National Security Strategy dangerously recommends preemptive action against emerging threats before they are fully formed. I've only been able to include a proportion of the evidence adduced in this study, but sufficient to indicate the upholding of Griffin's thesis that American exceptionalism, in the sense that the US is morally superior to other countries, is conclusively proven false. This does not excuse in any way similar behaviour by other countries, 
but the book is a major and necessary corrective to a self-righteous and ill-informed interpretation of US history and foreign policy. It is much better explained in terms of naked political and commercial self-interest than by the accompanying rhetoric of noble altruism in the name of freedom and democracy. In the next episode, I will be reviewing a couple of books in a rather different field on transpersonal psychology. <laughs>